This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. <coughs> Good afternoon. It's really good to be here uh, with you, practicing, sitting with you. Um, I read a, a, a story recently that really um, that really moved me, really inspired me, uh, kind of reinvigorated my practice, and I always am grateful for those. Um, encounters, because as much as I love practice, as much as I love zazen, you know, you, you get used to it. And um, it's, it's, I find, you know, those instances in which something um, causes me to turn back to it with a renewed uh, energy and, and, um, sense of, of hunger and discovery, uh, very um, powerful, very valuable, and so I'm grateful. And this is a story of a woman named um, Florence Courtois, who studied at the Zen Center of Los Angeles later in life and uh, met Maizumi Roshi and told her this account, uh, this um, story of her seeking, And when she was very young, I think she was uh, 16 years old, she, um, I think she always had the proclivity to, um, she could sense that there there was more to life than what she was seeing and hearing and perceiving, you know, with her senses. It seems like she somehow was predisposed to look, to look deeply. But she had surgery when she was 16 or 17. And she said she had this experience as she was going under anesthesia where she saw this kind of bright spiral of light, very far away, huge, enormous, that was coming towards her. And a voice that said to her with with great authority, as the light hits you, you will understand and she says that actually when the, when, when the light actually made contact with her, she lost consciousness. But that when she came back to, you know, during after the surgery, she was convinced that that's where the truth lay, that she um, could contact it. And so began her, her search. And, um, you know, she, she went to college and studied all the philosophers and um, switched at one point from literature to psychology because she really wanted to understand, you know, what all of this is made of. And she said, you know, it was strange that of all the books in the world and all the laws and all the advice that you get from parents, from teachers, from peers, that no one could tell her how to live fully in each moment because she so clearly each moment was unique. So she was looking for what she called the, 
she didn't call it universal law, but the law of the moment, if you will. Like what, what is underlying all of this? What will help me to um, understand what this moment is and therefore, you know, who am I in it? I called it the rule of, of presence, but that was really, that's really my name for it. And she went to church. She was raised Catholic. She went to church. She talked to the priests. And she said, you know, that's, that's just more doctrine. They're still, they're not getting to the heart of things. How do I do the most ordinary tasks of my life? There must be a teaching that has to do with my ordinary life. Now, she knew nothing about Buddhism. She knew nothing about Zen. She hadn't even read about it. So to me, it's very striking that she, even the language that she uses was, was so in line with so many of the teachings that we are so used to hearing, we're in the midst of. And this was in the 1940s. So Buddhism I didn't, wasn't even in the country. And yet she, was, she understood, you know, it's like how I wash the dishes. And at one point she said, it's not what I do, it's how I do it. And what in this vast world of ours, what can teach me how to do this? And so in one of her psychology classes, she said one of her teachers said that the world was merely a neural projection, neural activity in the visual centers of the brain. And something clicked. But it's so interesting the way she understood it, the way she interpreted was, oh, this means that all of this is in me. That means that the answer is in me. I mean, she must have been 18, 19 years old at the time. You know, so clearly there's something happening in this person that she also trusted so deeply. Because she said her, her behavior then as she started to, to delve into this more deeply, she was, I really <coughs> wanted to understand experience, seeing, tasting, touching, hearing. She said, I really want to understand it. But apparently she was getting a little weird. Because she would go to class. She said at one point she was in a lecture, and there was this British visiting professor who was giving a lecture on history. And I guess she was sitting in the front row. And she said this had, she had the strangest, very powerful experience at one point where she could all of a sudden sense space in front of her, around her, behind her, through her. And she was so kind of enraptured in this experience and also didn't want to lose it. She was apparently sitting there, you know, with her eyes really big like this and holding her breath. And the lecturer just leans forward and says, Is there, did I say something that surprised you? And she's like, oh, no, no, sir. She breathed. She said she breathed and she blinked. And the moment passed in a way. But she understood once again as before that she had come in contact with something that was... Um, fragile and yet was ever-present. And she only had to find the way in. Right? I mean, you think of all these koans we hear about, the sound, you know, the, the pebble striking bamboo, the sound of rain, and the, te- the, the, the monastic usually becomes enlightened. Um, that any point of entry is an entry point if we are um, ready, if we are ready to enter. 
And so she kept asking herself, you know, how do you apprehend reality all at once? Because it can't be just in my brain. And she said, it has to be my whole body. And she says, how, do you, how can you think with your feet as well as with your head? Which, again, to me is kind of a precursor. I was saying to, to some of you, you know, just learning how to ask a question, which is what Cohen's study does. How do you hold something with your entire being? Well, you are asking with the soles of your feet. You're asking with your fingernails. You're asking with your, with your hair or lack of it. You know, your, all of your being is asking. Because that's really the only way to get to the kind of question that she's asking herself. She said, you know, it would take her all afternoon to iron a shirt. Because as she's doing that, she's, she's asking herself, you know, what is my perception in this moment? And who is the one perceiving? And at one point, she started having visions. And she says they weren't dreams, they weren't hallucinations, but they were these very clear visions where she understood that as human beings, we have, um, we have been cast, you could say, from the Garden of Eden, cast um, out, that we've, we've become estranged from ourselves, from nature. And it's as if we're sitting in this tiny little cubicle trying to understand this whole thing, not knowing that all we have to do is like open the door, open all the windows, open all the doors. And she wanted to communicate this, so she wrote a paper. Her teacher thought she was a little strange. And she, she, every time she kept trying to communicate to someone what she was experiencing, they actually sent her to, to um, the psychiatry department. And they took her to the infirmary at one point. I guess at one point she wasn't eating. So she was really consumed by this. So she was concentrating so hard on the bus, on trying to regain this, this experience of feeling space, that at one point she looked up and she realized people were staring at her, very concerned. And that's when somebody called uh, the, the nurse, and they advised her that she, she take some rest. And she does say, at one point she bought a, a, a bottle of pills because she thought, nobody understands what I'm speaking of. Maybe nobody, maybe I am crazy. And she thought, well, if I, if I need to, if I'm that alone, then I might, I might take these. And luckily, she, she didn't. And she sensed, again, I have no idea how, but she sensed that the way into this uh, questioning was silence, was stillness. So I don't think she was doing zazen, and I don't know if she was even doing meditation the way that we understand it per se, but she describes spending long periods just sitting by herself. And she said it was a kind of waiting, a very open and receptive waiting, in which she kept saying to herself, you know, she's trying to apprehend reality, and she keeps saying to herself, no, not this, no, not this, no, not this, and just waiting for she didn't know what, she goes home. She's on vacation now from, from college. She goes home, and one day she's sitting at the edge of her bed, just staring at her desk, and something happens. We say the, the bottom drops out of the bucket. She said that the earth turned on its axis, and she understood viscerally 
that she was not off on the earth, she said, but of it. That she was not separate from the desk, from her parents, from the bed she was sitting on. That everything was a whole. And not only that, it was a perfect whole. That meant that she was also perfect and whole, as we say, perfect and complete. And that nothing was more important than anything else. And so she says, If God was the word for this presence in which I was absorbed, then everything was either holy or nothing, because no distinction was possible. All was meaningful, complete as it was, each bird, bud, midge, mole, atom, crystal, of total importance in itself. As in the notes of a great symphony, nothing was large or small, nothing of more or less importance to the whole. I now saw that wholeness and holiness are one. And if I could continue in this state of open vision, I feel certain that whatever happened, everything would be right, just as it was. And many, many years later, she came across a group of people that had started to sit in what eventually became the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And she's actually, she was actually, she's passed away now, one of the founding members. And she spoke with Yasutani Roshi and told her, told him uh, her story. And, um, and he confirmed that she had had a profound uh, experience. And it doesn't end even just there where I, where I stop, you know, where she still at a certain point learns about Buddhism and is understanding that there actually is a framework for what she experienced, that there have been people who've experienced that. She just hadn't found them yet. And the first time she met Maizumi Roshi, Dada Roshi's teacher, she understood that he knew what she was talking about. And it was, she said, it was such a relief to, to, to realize she wasn't crazy, which she knew she wasn't, but that there was actually a whole realm of experience which she had entered and which others had as well. And so practicing samadhi is the sixth awareness of an enlightened being. And um, I skipped the fifth. I've been making my way through them. That's not forgetting the right thought, but I want to talk about that tomorrow. And I thought it was fitting to speak of samadhi during a, a zazen intensive. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that each of these teachings is an awareness Right? That's not a, a casual word. It's a knowing. A knowing that we must hold in our minds, in our beings. And in the case of samadhi, it's a single-pointed awareness, which is both single and pointed in the, in the case of you know, concentration that is single-minded, let's say, on the breath, where the only object in your awareness at a certain point is the breath, or it is keeping the mind steady and let the flow of thoughts pass and you're watching it more like in Shikantaza, this very open awareness. But you're not sitting there thinking, you're watching the flow of thoughts. So either, a samadhi applies to, to either one. And in his uh, teaching on this awareness, the Buddha said, when you friends unify your minds, the mind is in samadhi. 
Since the mind is in samadhi, you know the characteristics of the creation and destruction of the various phenomena in the world. For this reason, you should constantly practice with diligence and cultivate all kinds of samadhi. When you gain samadhi, the mind is not scattered, just as those who protect themselves from floods guard the levee. This is also true for practice. For the sake of the water of wisdom, then, cultivate samadhi well and do not let it leak. This is called samadhi. And in his commentary to this passage, Master Dogen says, um, dwelling in the Dharma undisturbed is what is called samadhi. Dwelling in the Dharma undisturbed. We could just say, more simply, dwelling undisturbed. We could just say dwelling. Dwelling in the Dharma in our minds, in our bodies, unmoving. We're able to see, we're able to know the characteristics of the creation and destruction of the various phenomena in the world. In the, in the Shasta Abbey translation, it's a little different. It says you're able to know the world, birth and death, as well as the characteristics of all things. So practicing samadhi, dwelling undisturbed, we understand. We're able to know the birth and death of all things, including this one. We understand the birth and death of a thought, of a feeling, of a thing. So we're able to see when as a phenomenon arises, when it persists, we're able to see when it passes away. In, in the Maizumi Roshi translation, it's even more pointed. We're able to see its creation and its destruction. And so the question immediately becomes, who creates it? Who destroys it? When a feeling arises, we find ourselves angry. Who created that anger? Where and by whom was it created, let's say? Who or what gave birth to it? And when it goes, when does it, where does it go? When it dies? When it's destroyed? And why is this important? Why is this important? So Dogen uses the Japanese word zenjo to refer to samadhi. Zen is the zen of Zen meditation, Zen of dhyana, meditative absorption. Dhyana is the Sanskrit. Jhana is the Pali, which comes from Chana in Chinese, which became Chan, which became Zen. And Jo is the state of absorption itself. So Samadhi is the state in which subject and object merge. When, I, when I'm um, talking to students, sometimes I say it's the moment in which you and the breath become one. There's no longer someone breathing. There is just breath itself. That is samadhi. And as the Buddha is is alluding to here, there's different kinds. There's actually many different kinds of of samadhi in the the Visuddhimaga, the path of purification. But Agosa speaks of access samadhi and what we know as absolute samadhi. And, you know, you may know that there's these, um, the jhanas, the deep states of, of meditative absorption. And each one is, is um, you could say, more 
complete or whole than the last. And access is how you go into and out of them. And we don't speak about it very much in, in Zen, but in, in Vipassana meditation, uh, you're taught quite uh, directly and deliberately how to enter and exit jhana, how to access access samadhi, which then leads to absolute samadhi. And an absolute samadhi, there's nothing. right? There is no subject, there is no object, there is no concentrating, there is no insight, there's no suffering, there's no compassion, there's nothing. Not a single thing. So it's really an access samadhi, especially as you're coming out, where insight, where wisdom arises. I remember Daito Roshi used to speak of it as almost as if you're, you're looking back, right? The experience is over, and now you're looking back and taking stock. So you can't know you're in samadhi, in samadhi. Because sometimes people ask, well, how will I know? You won't. You will only know after, especially by how you feel. If you were sitting there sleeping, you didn't hear the bell, you'll feel pretty much like you feel most of the time. Nothing happens. Samadhi, at least in my experience, is, is uh, sharp. It's bright. It's, uh, and your mind feels calm, feels steady. And, and uh, Courtois describes a very, like her vision actually changed, like it was more acute. She was able to see quite literally in a way that she couldn't, she couldn't see before. And so you, you can tell, and usually, I mean, the teacher can tell, the way you move, the, the, the way you speak even, uh, you can tell if, uh, if what really what you experienced was samadhi. And so, as I said, you know, in it, there is no concentrating. There's no trying. You can't force yourself into samadhi at all. You can only practice single-pointedness until there is the dropping away of body and mind. There's also mundane and supramundane samadhi. There's limited, exalted, measureless, with happiness, without happiness. So there's many, many kinds. And the Buddha is saying, practice all of them. Practice as many of them. As he said, um, cultivate all kinds of samadhi. And we speak of it more simply. We do speak of it pretty much in terms of absolute and relative samadhi. Absolute and working samadhi. The samadhi of washing the dishes, the samadhi of chopping firewood, and and having your whole being um, be one in that movement, you know, so that you you there, there's no there's no deliberateness, there's no effort involved. You, the moment the axe touches the log, it it separates like butter. Right? It's when you hit things just. Right. You could say, I mean, in sports, they've called that the flow, which is uh, good and it's powerful. It doesn't necessarily need, lead to insight. So the whole point of this um, deliberate concentration is so that you can see, so that you can see more clearly. And so as I was saying, you know, Courtois didn't know any of this, none of this. She only knew she needed to understand. 
and she would not rest, quite literally, until she understood, until she did. And now, I think, you know, she's pretty extraordinary, but I do think that that kind of hunger needs to be our hunger in order to uh, practice in this way, in order to really put to rest the matter of the question of life and death. It has to be that important. You can't practice samadhi halfway. Or you can, but then it's not really samadhi. The, it, it, built into the definition is this whole wholeheartedness. And so she understood that in order to perceive, to truly perceive reality, she had to go beyond her senses, right? beyond her eyes, her ears, her nose, tongue, body, and mind, which the Heart Sutra alludes to. That moment of no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, that's samadhi. And as you may recall, uh, Dongshan, the great master Dongshan, saying, asking his teacher, you know, he's, he's sitting, you know, he's probably in, in the monastery and he's chanting this every day. And at one point when he stops, he's like, well, I have eyes, I have ears, I have nose, tongue, body, mind. Why does the Heart Sutra say no eyes, no ears? That's a moment of deep inquiry. He's not just, well, I'll go along with this chant and eventually, hopefully, I'll understand it. He wants to understand, why does the Heart Sutra say that? What are they pointing to? And so Courtois understood she had to tame her senses first and then go beyond them. And this taming is, is real, is true. You know, I, I sometimes say to students, you know, if they feel... Um, Concern, you know, am I doing this right? Uh, the, then the practice is to, to not worry whether you're concentrating or not concentrating, but to really just practice that seeing a thought, letting it go, and coming back. It's just that very um, consistent and repetitive, not just coming back, it's trusting, trusting that you, in fact, can do that. And so in that moment, whether there is a place, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there is a place where there is, there is concentration, no concentration, distraction, um, is, is less important than, than knowing that you're in your mind and that your mind is you, is your thoughts. So distracted mind, the Tibetan teachers speak of this, distracted mind, focused mind, it's all you, it's all mind. And from that perspective, you can't do it wrong. You can sit there thinking, which means not really doing zazen. But from another perspective, you can't be separate from your mind, ever. From that perspective, you can't do it wrong. But these, uh, the Chinese um, masters called uh, sh- um, samadhi cheng shou. I'm probably not saying that right, but right receiving, the right receiving of reality. Guarding the levee, we protect the waters from, from spilling all over the place. We contain the flow without forcing it, but through, through holding it, allowing it to flow undisturbed, because it will. 
If we let it, it will. It wants to be undisturbed. It wants to settle. And when it does, then we're able to perceive reality and receive it, It, which is really apprehending what has always been there. Like, um, you know, like washing a window and removing just layers of grime and dead bugs. You can't get through. You you can't see the view. You don't even know there's a view. And unfortunately, we're so often stuck at the level of grime and dead bugs. We can't see that there's a whole universe out there. And so, so many of the religious traditions across traditions, not just Buddhist, are speaking about this, this containing, this, this taming of the senses, of the mind, of, of really allowing your awareness to, to narrow, in one sense, to focus. And I've, and I've described it often as like a, like a funnel. You have to get very narrow, very close, so that you can push through and then open back up. And so, when we move too fast, when we talk to ourselves, we, it's, it's, it's like putting, putting bricks in front of that door, in front of that gateway. <clears throat> or it's like we, we, we call it, we're too wrapped up, uh, quite literally, as if we, we wrapped ourselves in cellophane and then walked around like that, expecting that we'll still be able to interact with the world. How could you? How could you possibly come in contact with reality in that way? So the Sixth Ancestor says that samadhi is the substance of wisdom, and wisdom is the functioning of samadhi. And that's the the next awareness. The seventh awareness is cultivating wisdom. Because I've said many times, you can be very concentrated and very deluded. So it's not enough to be quiet. It's not enough to be focused. Paired with mindfulness... Concentration, samadhi can lead to insight, you know, to wisdom. Because it's very difficult, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult for wisdom to arise and to function well without concentration. It's like trying to build a house and deciding, you know, you're too busy to build, to, to pour the foundation. When, when we get impatient and say, you know, I've been working on the breath for two weeks, okay, can I work on a koan now? That's what we're doing. We're trying to build a house without the foundation. And so uh, a big part of what you're doing in this working, of being close, being close to your breath, is, is exactly that. Practicing, cultivating, um, strengthening samadhi. So that when you get to the point where you either are given a question to work with or you're given... Uh, this very open awareness, you're not just sitting there thinking. You're not just sitting there turning the mind. Because when we don't know what to do, when we can't see it, that's what we'll do, most of us. And if you're smart, 
that's even worse. It's even harder because it takes longer to stop trusting that you're going to figure your way out through, through this. I mean, I can't tell you how many years I, try, I uh, almost literally hit my head against the wall because I thought, well, you know, my, my brain, my intelligence has served me pretty well up until now. I mean, surely when they say that it's not working with this, they don't really mean it. There must be some kind of workaround, and I'm going to find it. And, and Dido just kept laughing at me. Uh, I remember one time going in, and I was desperate. I'd been working on Moo, and I was desperate. Oh, no, that wasn't Moo. It, was it was a different con that I'd been working on. It felt to me like for a very long time. And he just looked at me. I said, I said at one point, you know, I was almost in tears. Maybe I was in tears. And I said, why am I having such a hard time? And he looks at me. He leans forward and says, because Vanessa needs to know. Sends me back to my seat. <laughs> I was so angry. And he was so right. He was so right. It is that mind that needs to know, but it's not the kind of knowing I described earlier. It's that needs to know intellectually, needs to grasp it, needs to hold it. It doesn't work. You can't hold the breath. You can't grasp the breath. You know, and, and, and we're not crazy. We're just stubborn. You think, you know, if, I just, if I'm just able to grasp this, then everything will be fine. It doesn't come with handles. You can't. You can't do that. You can't do that with a koan. You can't do that with a breath. You can't do it with a life koan. Those really um, root questions of your life. Because you actually don't have to work on koans. Life will throw them at you. And the question becomes, how do I meet this? How do I meet this fully? How do I meet it with my whole being? And so, you know, to, to build our house without the foundation is also as those moments when we say, you know, I'm just, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to practice. I'm too busy to, to sit. But I'll be mindful all day. And it, it would be fine if we were actually able to do that. But we can't. I mean, no one can sustain that kind of mindfulness. I mean, the Buddha spoke of mindfulness. He has a sutra in which he describes uh, there's a throng of people, you're on one side, which is really, you know, he's just a, a regular guy, seeking, pleasure-seeking guy. He doesn't want to know too much about life and death. Let's say it's just, it's you. And, and you're given the task of putting a bowl of oil on your head. At least it's oil and not water. So you have a little bit of a, an advantage there. But it's a bowl of oil brimming with oil. And you have to get through this throng of people to where this dancing queen, it's a little bit of a sexist uh, story, but where this dancing queen is on the other side. If you drop a single uh, bowl of oil, um, drop of oil, your head will be cut off. There's someone behind you with a sword. That's mindfulness. That is mindfulness, being able to keep that bowl of oil in your head without spilling a drop. Who can sustain that for a few minutes, let alone a whole day? And I was saying to someone, it's like, imagine that you're, you're driving through the kind of rain we had yesterday, a downpour, and it's night, so it's pitch black, and you're trying to get to where you're going, 
that kind of attention is what you need. Without being tense, without being frantic, but that kind of alertness, that's actually real mindfulness. So if we could do that, okay, we'll be all, we would be all set. We just don't. And, and Bhante Gunaratana, in fact, says, you know, the Buddha never said that it's concentration that leads, um, that is mindfulness that leads to wisdom. He said it's concentration. And that is why concentration is the last of the Eightfold Path. Not mindfulness. Mindfulness goes just before. <clears throat> and so that is why sitting regularly as we're going about our lives is that foundation, is that ground on which we're taking each step. You know, and somebody asked the Dalai Lama, you know, how can you practice? How can you make time for formal practice? You know, he's always traveling, he's always teaching. And he said, you know, when I'm really busy, I practice about three hours a day. And that's, you know, formal, formal practice. Let's call it zazen. And then he stopped and he thought for a moment, when I'm really, really busy, I practice four hours a day. And I've always loved that uh, anecdote because it points to me to the fact that he knows what he needs. He knows exactly what he needs in order to do the relentless work of turning towards the world and serving. He knows how to renew himself, how to rest his mind, his body deeply so that he can in fact, be the Dalai Lama and continue to do that day after day. That is why the Buddha says, protect your mind. That is why Shantideva says, guard introspection. Because if we, if we speak of samadhi as stilling the waves of the mind, then not practicing samadhi is like being in the middle of a hurricane. And you're in a tiny, you're holding onto a tiny little log, which is you, and all your ideas about you and your life. And you're, you're thrown about this way and that, eight foot waves. And you're just holding, praying that this little log will hold and somehow will get you to where you want to go. When we understand what gives rise to the wave, what makes it subside, what the log is, then we don't need a log or a raft or a boat or a ship. We are that ocean. And so when it's calm, it's calm. When it's raging, you ride that wave knowing it will pass. Like every other created thing in the universe, it will change. And that is why in that moment you no longer have to still the mind. It's it's the ocean's nature to flow, to have waves. And so sometimes it is still and sometimes it is moving. Either one is perfectly, perfectly right. But without that deep stillness, we can't see this, let alone trust it. And so coming close, coming close to that thought, coming close to the breath, coming close to a question, we see, oh, this is not what I thought it was. This is not all that it is. 
And, you know, in those, in those moments where we do want to, we want to grasp, we want to understand, it really actually just takes a moment. It's just really a moment of releasing that grasp, releasing that thought, an instant, an instant of turning towards rather than away from. That's all it takes. I mean, that, that description of, of Courtois' experience, it was the moment of the desk. Of course, it was all the moments before. But it was in a moment of her choosing and saying, you know, in this kind of the opposite of, of what we would say, of her saying, no, not this, no, not this. We could say, we could do it, use it a little different. We could say, yes, this. Yes, exactly this. This is the way that I enter. Until that closeness becomes redundant. There's no close. There's no near and no far. So we chant in the identity of relative and absolute. In that, that, in that closeness, wor- uh, words fall apart. Effort falls apart. Doing it right, doing it wrong falls apart. And so in these last you know, couple of hours that we have left together, Trust your practice like you have never trusted anything in your life. Trust, have faith in your ability to be that close. To be that close to yourself. To be that close to your breath. To be that close to discomfort, to pain, to heat. In the Old Testament, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I would say that in Buddhism, faith is is the substance of things recognized and the evidence of things not yet seen. Not yet seen. And so in Buddhism, having faith means knowing that you already are that which you seek. And it is sitting in, practicing in, dwelling undisturbed in that recognition knowing that you can use mind to go beyond mind, that you can use the senses to go beyond the senses, because that's all we have. That's all we have. That you can use the body to let the body drop away without leaving any of it behind. Quite the contrary, because you realize that there's no place where they are not, where you are not. And so sometimes your zazen will feel deep, Sometimes it will feel shallow. It actually doesn't matter. So in a moment when you're thinking that, oh, this is bad zazen, remember, it actually, I said that, actually it doesn't matter. You just sit as deeply as you can in that moment, as wholeheartedly, as fully as you can in that moment. Again, trust your capacity to do this, to dwell undisturbed in the Dharma. And know that ultimately this is who you and I are. This is who we are. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessaswesaygoddard.org.